Okay. So I'm going to start things off here by just being really honest with you and telling you that this is one of many, many takes for the first episode of this podcast. The truth of the matter is, is that I have been struggling, struggling to even figure out how to explain to you what this podcast is, but maybe more importantly, struggling with my own perfectionism, wanting to get this thing right on the very first go. And I give up. I surrender. I'm just hitting record and I'm going to talk and share with you what I'm trying to do, what's on my heart, and ultimately just invite you to join me in the process. So I knew from the beginning that I wanted this podcast to be about voice because, well, that's my thing. But I didn't necessarily want it to focus on, you know, voice technique, tips and tricks, performance, vocal health, pedagogy, that kind of stuff. Although it's my hope that all of that will be included in the stories, in the discussion. But ultimately, I want this podcast to be about voice in the broader sense. Voice as metaphor, voice as story, voice as journey, voice as a modality for healing in our lives, and really just about voice as our shared collective experience. And I can't whittle that down into a nice short sentence, but what I can do is tell you more about how I even arrived at this idea. I've been teaching and coaching voice for almost 20 years, and there's this thing that happens whenever you do something for a really long time. You start to notice patterns and themes that emerge. It's the gift, the wisdom of experience. And as I gained more of it, I started to notice that when people would come into my studio, new clients, and they would share with me about their lives, often unrelated to their singing or their voice, with some accuracy, I could start to predict what their technical struggles would be. Of course, there were exceptions and outliers, but there were often similarities, and what this really illuminated for me was how alike we all are. And so if one person struggled with one thing, and I had worked with someone previously on that same thing, or even struggled with it in my own voice, it gave me hope because I was able to share that there is a path toward healing, toward transformation, toward change. And to me, this is just the good news of being human. So often we feel so alone in our journeys. We believe the myth of singularity, of isolation, and we think we're the only one experiencing what we're experiencing. But it seems to me that the only way to debunk that myth is to connect through conversations and telling stories, and in this case, particularly around the framework of voice. Because inevitably, when we talk about voice, We talk about the whole of who we are. So to start things off, I'd like to tell you just a little bit more about who I am.
I grew up in a small Midwestern town, population about 3,500 people. And in that community, I was a bit of an anomaly because I was a young boy who loved to sing. And from a young age, I did it pretty well. I remember early on the juxtaposition of the boys on my soccer team not being at all impressed with my abilities as a singer, and then the ladies at church just loving it. And so by the time I was about 11, I had received enough praise and enough affirmation that I was convinced it was time to take this singing thing to the next level. So I convinced my folks to get me voice lessons, and they found the only teacher in the area that would work with a prepubescent boy or someone whose voice hadn't changed yet. And I remember distinctly our first lesson revealing to my teacher that my goal was to be on Star Search. From Hollywood, it's the world's greatest talent competition. It's Star Search with your host. I think she found this admission cute and surprising. And she proceeded to try and support me by pulling out this book called 24 Italian Songs and Arias which to my disappointment did not contain any of the pop ballads I had heard Christina Aguilera belt out to Ed McMahon. But you know what? I loved to sing. And I was happy to be singing. It didn't really matter what I was singing. But in no time I learned how to imitate my teacher's Italian diction, to copy the quality of her sound. And by the time the seventh grade talent show rolled around, I was happy to reveal to my classmates this song that I had worked on called Nina, which was in Italian and it was about death. When all was said and done, the audience erupted. And I thought to myself, huh, I must be an opera singer. Over time, I developed a pretty impressive baritone. And it seemed to be that there was a direct correlation between how big and loud my voice was with how much praise and attention I could get. This gave me confidence. And as a result, throughout high school, I was almost compulsive. From community events, to church events, to choir concerts, to theater, competitions, I did it all. And finally, auditions, which ultimately landed me at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music. Within the first few days at Oberlin, I realized that I was no longer an anomaly that in fact my story was quite common and the people with which it was common all happened to also audition and get accepted at Oberlin. And so the cool part was that I was able to quickly make friends with people who shared my experience. But the hard part was the praise and the attention and the applause to which I had grown so accustomed was no longer there. And in its place was just the big loud sound of my voice which I discovered I didn't like very much. I spent the next four years working with 
quite honestly, one of the world's foremost voice teachers. And I worked really hard to impress him. And on the days that I would get positive feedback and affirmation, I was convinced that I was on the path to fulfill my destiny to sing at the Metropolitan Opera. But on the other days, I felt so alone, and often I was. Many times hanging out by myself in a practice room, singing some old familiar Christian praise song from my childhood, and really just flirting with depression in a way that I had never before, and in a way that I was ill-equipped to deal with. In hindsight, singing felt a lot like roulette. It felt like a gamble that on any given day I was terrified of losing. And I still felt committed to being a singer, but I just hated my voice. After college, I needed a break. So while many of my peers were headed off to graduate school for more of the same, I just couldn't do it. And I decided I would go to Chicago. And very intentionally, I chose to work in an office because I thought if I could work around the arts in the nonprofit arts management world, that if I could be in close proximity to music, that I wouldn't be in danger of getting hurt. And maybe, just maybe, I would be satisfied, but boy, was I not satisfied. I remember this becoming very apparent in staff lunches where I would catch myself overhyping the few singing gigs that I had sort of passively gotten. Churches, funerals, weddings, choirs, and I felt like maybe I was doing this to convince my coworkers that I was more than this title of coordinator that I had been given. And sometimes they even seemed impressed, but most of the time I was not. It was also around this time that I did what so many others with my story tend to do. I taught. My name is Davin Youngs, and I am a voice teacher and vocal coach uh, based in Chicago, Illinois. I am the founder and director of Davin Youngs Voice. I taught others how to sing and at first I just did this in my apartment, but eventually it grew and I rented a studio that sat above this old pizza joint on Lawrence Avenue. And I invited anyone who had a desire to learn more about their voice. And I quickly realized that anyone actually means everyone because the diversity of clients that came through my door it was shocking and surprising and lovely and exciting. And I did my best to support each of those singers on their journey. And it feels so good to get to that edge, but don't go past the edge, okay? 
all the while knowing that I was completely lost in mine. At Oberlin, I blamed my singing for my sadness. But as I ventured further into adulthood and coached more singers, I realized that when we talk about the voice, we're inevitably talking about the whole of our lives. And both my voice and my life, they weren't free. See, I'm queer, and I learned from a very early age that that meant unlovable. And so I attempted to use my voice as a bargaining tool through singing and performing and being on display as a means to gather the love that I so desperately craved. And I thought if I sang bigger and louder that it would somehow compensate for the ways in which I felt so small but instead I was just sort of recklessly and protectively wielding this inauthentic sound that didn't really tell the story of who I was. <laughs> it's funny because Oberlin would have been the perfect place to try my more authentic self on for size. At, at some point, it seemed like everyone was queer, at least for a little while during their time there. But I just wasn't ready. My wounds were deep, and rather, I just spent the four years banging my head against the practice room walls. But life goes on, and it wasn't until my first real romantic heartbreak and then my subsequent break up with singing that I was able to start really being honest with people about who I was. At first, I just started telling strangers, and then I told some friends, and then I moved on to family. And I count it all amongst one of the hardest things I've ever done because, quite honestly, I wasn't met always with the love and affection that I had previously performed for. But now, I was no longer willing to perform, and certainly not to bargain or to beg. I was only willing to show up with this voice, exactly how it was. And it was through that that I realized that so much of it was still hidden away. And I was determined to uncover it. And so with all of that in mind, I got the courage to leave the thrills of office life. I gave up uh, weekends and health insurance and contribution to my retirement plan. And I committed my whole life to nurturing my still small voice within and supporting others on their vocal journey. And you know what happened? My private teaching studio, it flourished. After that, I met the love of my life, my partner Scott, who I've been with now for over 10 years. Thank you.
Okay, but that's not where the story ends. So in 2013, I got an email announcing a symposium, a voice symposium at Oberlin. And surprisingly, it seemed to be uniquely directed toward me. Oberlin was a strictly classical institution, meaning that singers only sang operatically in an official way. And although we weren't strictly forbidden from singing, let's say, pop, rock, R&B, gospel music, uh, we certainly felt relegated to the basements of our dorm where I remember my peers belting their faces off at night. But I guess things change because this weekend was dedicated to teachers and coaches who work specifically with what they deemed contemporary commercial music. And I learned over the years that most of the people that would come through my door did not want to sing opera. And if I was being really honest, neither did I. I'm pretty sure it was with that in mind that I was chosen to perform in a masterclass for the symposium. I was asked to sing something quote unquote contemporary on a stage where I had only ever delivered classical recitals. Somewhat embarrassingly, I chose Michael Bublé's version of Feeling Good, I think only because it felt safe. And at the end of the performance, probably after I held the last note as loudly and as long as I could, a small woman, a fiery New York Italian voice teacher, stood up and looked me in the eye and said, wow, that was brave. I knew right away that this was not a compliment. And so the remainder of the 45 minutes or so that we worked together Jeannie Levetri guided me to make sounds and sing in ways that I had never sung before. And quite honestly, I didn't like it. Later that evening, uh, we all attended a recital by a lovely classical singer at a weekend dedicated to contemporary commercial music. And as I sat there uncomfortably, squirming in my seat, sort of irritated at the nature of what it was that we were doing, I realized that I wasn't only uncomfortable because of the recital. I was uncomfortable because my ego had been badly bruised. So when the recital came to an end, I rushed to the foyer to catch Jeannie and ask her, what I thought might be an impressive question, a question that might change our experience from earlier in the day. And, and really, I don't even remember what it was that I asked. I just know that her response to me was, Davin, you don't know your voice because if you knew your voice, you wouldn't push it. And I thought to myself, well, there it is. Finally, someone said it. She wasn't saying I was a bad teacher. She wasn't saying I was a bad singer or a bad person. She just said I didn't know my voice and I knew that she was right.
After that, I went home and I licked my wounds. And within no time, I found myself on an airplane headed to New York City to work more with Jeannie Lavetri. There's just something that happens when someone speaks truth to you. And I'll never forget the first time she guided me to sing with more freedom in my voice. It was like it just flew out of my body and tears quickly followed. And I was so confused and perplexed, but she seemed comfortable and even excited. She told me I could trust my body, something no one had ever said to me before and something I was terrified of doing. But I noticed that when I did, it changed my sound. Another time when we were working together, she said to me, Davin, to know the sound is to make the sound. And at first I took that as a cue to make the sound over and over and over again in an attempt to rush the process. But eventually I found myself just making all the sounds because I was enamored with them. Singing had become this life-giving experience. It was exhilarating, it was creative, it encouraged authenticity, it encouraged freedom. One Sunday after singing at a church gig, a friend came up to me and she said, you seem freer. And while I'm pretty sure she was talking about my singing and my voice, I just looked her in the eye and I said, I am. my voice had started to reflect that which I wanted the world to know about me, that I'm a person on the path to freedom, on the path toward liberation, that I love my voice because I've learned to love myself. And <laughs> you know how the saying goes, if you love someone, or something, set them free. This season on The Sound of You. When I got back to New York, I was trying to sing a song that I had sung, you know, maybe four million times for an audition, and it was like, it was like there were holes in my voice and I would go to hit a certain note that was like maybe a money note of mine before. And it was, it, when, when I visualize it, it was like those end of the world movies where the earth just cracks <laughs> in two and you see like one person and then the love interest is on the, like, the other side of this like canyon that's like it was falling apart um, at the seams. I didn't want to be a singer. I remember that. I remember thinking that that seemed like a really tall order, you know, and I didn't qualify myself as a singer. I remember 
thinking that it'd be really cool to play guitar in a band and write songs. And I would get some good looking dude would be up there and he would be out there singing and belting these songs out. And I would just be the guy behind him. And now it sounded like, that sounded like a good idea. And um, I had done enough stuff with enough friends trying to find that person. In the meantime, when you're trying to get someone to do something that you want it to happen in the way you want it to happen and they're not doing it, you at some point you say, I'll just do it, you know? And that was me listening to other people sing. You know, it was kind of like, this isn't, no, you should do it different. No, I finally I was like, wait a minute, I should just be doing this. In a sort of powerful way that I look back on, I couldn't hear myself because I was too afraid to hear myself. Because if I, if I truly heard all my, you know, weaknesses, um, I'd be too devastated to keep going. And there was something about sort of, when I was younger, what carried me on was delusional optimism. You know, this sort of just push forward, don't hear anything that says otherwise and just go. And it got me reasonably, you know, it got me some success just kind of plunging ahead. But, but truly underneath it, a, a fear to see all of my flaws and my weaknesses and, and to sort of be vulnerable to that because I was so afraid that, that that would, I mean, I didn't know this, right? But looking back, I know I was too afraid that it would be too much. I'd be overwhelmed and I would stop trying. I would give up. It came to me so clearly. That was the moment that I realized that. If I did not leave that man, if I did not understand my own power and my special soul, I was never going to learn it. I was always going to be in somebody else's domain. Fortunately, the, the angels surrounded me and guided me out of there. And I, I had nothing more important to do in my life than get free. Since I had survived that death, I felt like my big job was to learn everything that was possible that was going to make me free and never let me get in that kind of situation again. And for me, meeting all those artists, these people are all trying to get free. That's what they're all trying to do. And they're choosing all these different ways. Wherever it is that you stream your favorite podcasts, please rate, like, review, share, subscribe to The Sound of You, and learn more at davinyoungs, D-A-V-I-N-Y-O-U-N-G-S dot com.